Dion, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. But my key point is this, that actually it is possible to reimagine capitalism. It is possible to fix its flaws. It is not a perfect system. But capitalism and markets operate on the idea that you need to have a plurality of ideas and competition. You need to have checks and balances. Things move in cycles. And right now, we need to fix capitalism. That's Jillian Tett. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Jillian Tett and Yanis Varoufakis on Can Capitalism Be Fixed? Capitalism's origins, several centuries ago, can be traced to the expropriation of the commons and its transformation into private property. Since those hoary beginnings, it has evolved into an economic system based on the private ownership of the means of production and its operation for profit. In the last 40 years or so, Capitalism has evolved into its neoliberal phase, characterized by deregulation, punishing bubbles, economic crises, and jaw-dropping income and wealth inequality. The system's egregious excesses are sometimes addressed by lawmakers who serve up temporary bromides to placate the restless many but they're just tinkering around the edges, making cosmetic changes. The system is fundamentally the same. There is no alternative, we are told. Why isn't there? To talk about whether capitalism can be fixed are Gillian Tett and Yanis Varoufakis. Gillian Tett is an award-winning journalist at the Financial Times, where she is chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large. Yanis Varoufakis is a member of the Greek Parliament. He served as finance minister of Greece in 2015. He's founder of Mera 25, a progressive Greek political party. The debate was held at Union Chapel in London, United Kingdom, and moderated by Anne McAlvoy. We begin with Yanis Varoufakis. Now, the problem with these um, boys' games, you know, Oxford Union debates, is that uh, they force upon us a dichotomy. Either you're in favor of an emotion or against emotion, which is fun, but not very helpful. Uh, so allow me to answer the question in my own way. I don't think it's an interesting question whether we should fix capitalism. Because capitalism, and this is something that I have managed to convince myself of in the last year or so. 2021 is a little bit like the 1790s when Adam Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations. In the sense that the world was feudal, but there were small pockets of capitalism that were emerging that Adam Smith managed to cotton onto, you know, Glasgow University was happening uh, just below him, the Clyde Valley, he could see it. But it was tiny, it was a speck of capitalist dust in you know, a desert of feudalism. 
Still, Adam Smith managed to see that what was growing under his window in the Clydes and in Manchester and elsewhere uh, was infecting feudalism and feudalism was not going to be on the way out. Even when Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto, of whose, you know, the first five, six pages are akin to capitalism, really all about, you know, breaking down superstition and, you know, ushering in new technologies and so on. It was a, a kind of prequel to globalization, which was not actually taking place. He was um, ahead of his time. I think we are in a similar moment. I think that capitalism is on its way out, uh, not because the left, well, in our pathetic lot, have managed to overthrow. No, we have not done that. We, if anything, we have solidified capitalism. I'm talking about the left um, through our orchestrated idiocy across many countries and continents. No, but capitalism is overthrowing itself in the same way that feudalism overthrew itself. And here's some food for thought and for criticism uh, by Gillian. Look, before we can have any meaningful discussion about capitalism, we have to define our terms. What is capitalism? Capitalism has transformed itself so magnificently over the centuries. You know, the capitalism of Adam Smith doesn't exist. It's not the baker, the, the brewer, and the butcher. Uh, since the Second Industrial Revolution, it was, you know, the Henry Fords, the Edisons, the you know, large monopoly or oligopoly capital. Then we had big government with uh, the New Deal and the Great Society. Then after that, we had financialized capitalism or entire capitalism. You know, it really has this capacity to transform itself. But throughout all these transformations, Capitalism retained two main characteristics. First, the fuel that drives it is profit. Profit, which then gets reinvested, becomes new capital, and the thing goes on. The second characteristic of capitalism is markets. The creation of the labor market, following the enclosures, uh, the eviction of the peasants from the land, created a mass of workers who then became the proletariat, the commodification of the land, every process, production process, extraction process, is happening through markets. So, profits and markets, central pillars of capitalism. Looking around, I already see, it's at a very early stage, wherever we look at, we see capitalist relations, there's no doubt about that. In the same way that wherever Adam Smith looked around him, around the world, it's mostly, it was mostly feudal relations. But I think that I can already see the end of capitalism because, on the one hand, profits have ceased to be the fuel of the economic system we have. It is central bank money now. Without central bank money, the whole thing collapses, even the sectors that big tech and so on, that are highly profitable. They are squeezing out all the other sectors and participating in ending the markets and replacing them with platforms. Amazon, Facebook, and so on, they are not alternative markets. They are new technological fiefdoms. You enter Amazon, you exit the marketplace. You exit capitalism. You enter a realm where everything that is being bought and sold is controlled by one algorithm, one person, one owner. This is like a fiefdom, only it's a techno-fiefdom. So for me, the question is not, can we fix capitalism? The question is, is my hunch 
right, that we are already moving into a post-capitalist system, which I call techno-feudalism. And given that this techno-feudalism is highly at odds with liberalism, with Adam Smith, not just with socialists, how do we plan our collective strategy for not becoming techno-peasants within this global techno-feudalism? Well, thank you very much indeed, Anne, and it's great to be here tonight. I'm going to try and defend capitalism, but not the current form of capitalism. Because I'm trained as an anthropologist, um, and one of the things anthropologists spend a lot of time doing is look at the gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. Between rhetoric, between the rituals and symbols they aspire to, and the actual lived reality. And the core of my argument is that the capitalist flag, the flag of Adam Smith that Yana's talked about, has been waved around a lot in recent years by politicians, by business leaders, by financiers, yes, by financial journalists. But what we have today is not what Adam Smith sketched out. To understand that, you have to go back and realize that there are two books of Adam Smith and only one has been focused on in recent years. The Wealth of Nations lays out a theory about why competition is good. I happen to believe, to channel, I hate to say it, Boris Johnson, by quoting Winston Churchill, that actually competition and profit is the worst way to organize an economy except for all the others that have been tried. I say that having lived in the former Soviet Union where I did my research and seen other, other visions um, playing out. But when Adam Smith laid out his, two, his vision of capitalism, his vision of market forces, he didn't use the word capitalism, his vision of markets, he had two books, The Wealth of Nations, about competition and trade, and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And that vision essentially argued that there were four components you needed to make markets effective. You needed to have free access to markets people had to be able to take part in them. You need to have free access to prices. People needed to know what the prices were in a transparent way. You needed to have an elision of ownership between the people who managed ventures and actually owned them, which in Adam Smith's day were mostly family-owned owned firms, so it wasn't a problem. And you needed to have a shared moral, ethical, and legal base, which basically provided a foundation for people to have shared values and shared trust. Remember, the roots of the word credit come from the Latin to trust. And without that, it's very hard to have a market. If you dial back and think about what was happening two decades ago on Wall Street, you can see that all four of those components were missing. People did not have equal access to the markets because guess what? It was powerful cartels on Wall Street and the city of London who were running the show. They didn't have access to prices because yes, you can get access to stock market prices, but there's many other prices and finance that are not visible to the wider public. There wasn't effective elision of ownership and management because guess what? The people who were supposedly owning companies, which is all of us via our pension funds, tended to outsource that to asset managers who were largely asleep at the wheel. 
and didn't understand what was happening inside companies or banks. And there hasn't been a shared moral framework, or even one could argue a legal and ethical framework, essentially putting what's been happening in business and finance into the wider social context. Anthropologists are obsessed with context, obsessed with a sense of consequence of what business and finance does. I would argue that many of those shortcomings are found in other areas of modern capitalism, such as the tech sector, which Yanis just spoke about. I'd actually agree with you that there is a fundamental problem of monopoly power, of a lack of transparency, of a lack of access inside the tech sector as well. And so I would agree with you that capitalism actually isn't particularly effective there at the moment because we don't actually have that at the moment. We have a gap between rhetoric and reality. And yet, I personally still think that that vision of competition, that vision of using profits to be reinvested back in growth, that idea that actually innovation occurs when you have some friction, when you have a sense of personal responsibility, that is still a good set of principles to be using, to be driving an economy forward. So, for those reasons, I remain a fan of Adam Smith when you look at both books. And I'll just leave you with two last ideas, which again infuses how I see capitalism, how I'd like to see capitalism play out. As an anthropologist, again, I'm fascinated by words and language. I don't know how many of you know here where the word company comes from originally. It originally comes from Latin, from old, old Italian actually, con panio, meaning with bread. Because companies were originally seen as groups of people who ate together and then did business together. Similarly, I don't know how many of you know where, where the word finance comes from, but it actually comes from old French finir, meaning to finish, which sounds completely bizarre because people think that finance is basically never-ending loops of money going round and round like sugar in a candy floss maker, building a bigger and bigger puff of speculation that's kind of meaningless. But originally, finance was about paying off blood debts and finishing actual tangible commercial transactions. It was a means to an end, not an end in itself. So, to go back to Adam Smith, if you put those two books together, the vision of capitalism that I uphold is one where companies are recognized to be about humans and groups of people competing together, building things together, and money is a means to an end, the fuel that drives forward the economy and growth. And I personally think that is a vision that we should be upholding and aspiring to today. I think I just... Um just pick up a couple of points there to question both of you. Yanis, I'm just trying to put together a list in my head, and it's a pretty obvious one, but it goes something like this. Karl Marx, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, Stalin, any number of post-war communist leaders and supporters after the great rift in, in Europe, of course, in, in 1939 to 45, 1968, radicalism, Maoism, the line of argument there is, and each of them has seen the death throes of capitalism in some form. And yet, here we all are having a discussion about whether we can fix it. What makes you think that this time it's different factor? You're quite right. Uh, every socialist, and I count myself as one, 
um, has always been like a stopped clock that eventually tells the, the right time. We kept uh, predicting a massive financial collapse ever since I was, you know, 10. And it happened in 2008, so eventually, you know, all our predictions come true. Why do I think that uh, this time it's different? First, take what happened in the summer of 2020 here in London. I think it was the 12th of August when you had the announcement uh, that uh, your GDP fell by more than 20% for the first time in the history of British capitalism. Remember that? August 2020. Uh, the market expectations were for a fall of about 12-13%. It was much, much more than that. And yet 15, 16 minutes later, the London Stock Exchange went up. That has never happened before in the history of capitalism. Why did it happen? For a very logical reason. Because market players thought, oh my God, 20 plus, then immediately, nanoseconds later, they thought, okay, if we're panicking, the Bank of England are panicking. So they're going to print loads of money and they will pump it in our direction, okay, to refloat the disaster. So let's keep buying. This is simply a little tale that I tell in order to capture the manner in which financial markets have completely decoupled from really existing capitalism. And if you think about it, in 2008 we had a 1929, our generation's 1929. The difference with 1929 was that unlike the Hoover administration in the United States in 29 that let the banks fall, uh, the G7, G20, April 2009, Gordon Brown, London, uh, they decided to refloat them. So they went into a spasm of printing mountain ranges of money to refloat the financial markets, which they did very successfully. Proof that if they want to do something, they do. They do it, right? But ever since they did that, and they did it in a staggered way, the European Central Bank really began doing it in 2012 and then went all out in 2015 with Mario Draghi, 1st of March. But the way I see it now, capitalism has completely been hooked on the central bank money. Okay, so now you have a, a bifurcation of, uh, of, of capitalism. You have the companies that maintain profitability because it's not monopoly that they have. General Motors had a monopoly or an oligopoly. Amazon is different. It's a platform. It means that you exit capitalism, you exit the market, and you go into a place that, where everything that's sold or bought are controlled by one company. So if... If what I'm saying holds water, then Adam Smith is simply not relevant. He's as relevant as Karl Marx was in the Soviet Union when you were there. In other words, not at all. So you're saying Adam Smith's not relevant because the financial markets today don't tie into the real economy and because essentially you have platform monopolies on technology. Yes, and even the companies that are not platform companies through private equity takeovers, they're being taken over, loaded by, with debt which is financialized, those companies are then split up, asset stripped. So you have the squeezing of, of what Adam Smith would consider to be the capitalist sector, you know, the squeezing of it completely until all you have is central banks on the one hand, financial markets, and the platforms. So let me turn around and say it like this. Would you believe 
that competition is a good thing in an economy. Absolutely. I wrote okay, a book about okay, it. Okay, let me ask four questions. Do you believe that prices are useful? Yes, yes, I've read my Hayek. Okay. I understand. Do uh, you believe that profits are a good thing as an incentive and that you should reinvest profit back into ventures? No. But I do believe okay, that... No, hang on, hang wait. on. Gillian, wait, wait. In my utopia, in the other... Markets are essential because at some point the, um, the only thing that stops uh, authoritarianism and a Soviet kind of gulag from descending upon us is markets and competition and freedom, freedom of enterprise. But the problem is that the, the moment you have share markets that are being effectively turbocharged through, through central bank money, the competition dies. So your basic argument is with equity markets and the current form of equity markets and stockholding companies, if I understand it rightly. I mean, let me say this. If you believe that competition is valuable, if you believe that prices matter, if you believe in a diversification of different roles and specialist functions, yeah, and that's good. I believe in all that. Okay. Well, that doesn't make you sound very socialist, with all, be- all due respect. Well, well, you know, I'm Greek. So I can't organize myself. I have well, five opinions. <laughs> Therein lies my point. Five I opinions. Think, I think you have a slightly higher vision of what humans will do to le- left their own devices. Can you name one cooperative that has actually swelled in size and become a really effective operation? Okay, let me tell you that the company I'm referring to had 350 employees and $1.2 billion of revenue a year. And it worked really very well with completely flat management. So why aren't there more companies copying that? Because they're, they're being gobbled up. This is why. Because, you know, think of the trustee savings bank. Remember what happened to it? It was gobbled up. So the idea of cooperatives that work is well established from the 19th century in this country. You had cooperative banks, cooperative uh, supermarkets and so on that worked magnificently. But in an environment, in an economic environment, where the large fish eats the smaller fish, especially, you know, the smaller um, energetic fish, it's happening in, in Silicon Valley all the time. The Google and so on, they are destroying competition by buying them up. So, you know, that company in particular, right, you have no... Im- no idea the extent to which there were all these attempts by big money to buy it out. That's a separate issue because you're basically arguing two things. On the one hand, you have the question of what's the best way to organize a bunch of people who want to be in business and get money to fund that. Should they sit around as a happy cooperative and sing Kumbaya? But that's one question, i.e., how do they get money to finance what they're doing? And the second question then is, is there a regulatory structure to create a level playing field that stops the winners from essentially taking all and buying up the others? Ah, They're two separate questions. This is great. And I would agree on the second point that absolutely we need better umpires to create regulatory structures that stop winners taking all and doing unfair competition. It comes back to my four points about Adam Smith. On the question of how to organize companies, um, yes, cooperatives can sometimes work. Yes, I happen to think that with digital technology, probably it's getting easier to organize that than before. And digital transparency is changing things radically. And I think in many ways, maybe the savior of capitalism. However, I happen to think that in most cases, the ability to raise outside money from people who have a stake in a company, which is called an equity market, is a pretty efficient way of doing it 
unless, and I would agree with you, unless you have central banks printing oodles of cash, which essentially is distorting prices right now. I don't like what the central banks have done in recent years yeah, at all. Yeah, but you know what, Gillian? It can't be otherwise. We are in this situation we are now. If central banks stop printing money, the whole thing collapses. My utopia is more realistic than yours. The idea of going back to a capitalism that works is absolutely impossible now. You talked about the importance of having empires, of having proper regulation. It's impossible. They will always be captured because the concentration of power now under this what I call techno-feudalism is always going to be so gigantic that there is no government on this planet, however well-meaning its functionaries, that can do it. This is why I'm saying that if you really want competition and freedom and liberalism to be given a chance, we need to move away from share markets. We need to go to a system where, you ask the question, where, where does the capital come, come in from? From savings. We need to do that which Adam Smith recognized, because Adam Smith was exactly on my side here. He was totally against public limited companies because he understood that the moment you have liquid ownership, you have the ownership split up in tiny little pieces that can be traded anonymously in the stock exchange, suddenly his prerequisites for a well-functioning competitive market are gone. So why not just have pension funds, automatic enrollment, <clears throat> to have people owning asset, you know, mutual funds and things like that, providing some of the fuel for investing in companies and then combine that with radical digital transparency so that people can actually track what companies are doing and actually express an idea, a vote, if they want to. The pension funds will always be taken over by those who happen to have a greater percentage so why of not, why ownership than others. They will all, I mean, look, look at you know, the three big, you know, State Street, Vanguard and so on, they control... Yeah, 90% of the New York Stock Exchange. So, you know, who controls them? So why not work on reforming the pension funds and getting better financial oversight and regulation and working with a system that appears to actually in many ways spark innovation and growth? It can be done better, but why not work with that rather than aspire for something which has never actually materialized anywhere in the world on any scale effectively? You're listening to Gillian Tett and Yanis Varoufakis. Can capitalism be fixed? This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's Alternative Radio. I do want to put a bit of a squeeze on, on Julian on, on, on one point that, that I've heard, and this is the problem of the big tech monopolies and what that means. I mean, just to remind ourselves, the unprecedented levels of growth and consolidation. Yeah, so what are you going to do about, yeah, well, exactly. about Facebook? Yeah. Because what I'm saying is corporate law which says on one employee, one share, yeah, that kills lady. off the, the power lady. of Facebook. Yeah. What is your proposal? Okay, let me give my answer to Facebook, what I do about Facebook, and it's different from what you expect. There's one thing that Adam Smith got totally wrong, in fact, several things, but here's the most important thing for today. He thought that barter was an old-fashioned, prehistoric practice that really just involved cavemen sitting around in caves swapping piles of berries for meat. And he presumed that barter would essentially die out once you invented money and credit. 
he was 100% wrong. Economists automatically assume that barter is old-fashioned and doesn't matter. Anthropologists know that barter is actually something which has often been around in many communities at the same time as money and credit. Anyone who's read David Graeber's wonderful book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, will know this. Barter is alive and well today, big time, because Silicon Valley actually runs off barter. The wholesale swap of data for services. That is the bedrock of much of the tech sector today. It does not involve money, and we have no way of talking about it day to day except to say that it's free. And we tend to only focus on one aspect of this, which is how tech companies take our data. We don't look at the services. So the, the reason I mention all this is really mm. important. If you want to reform tech today and create a more ethical tech system, you don't necessarily need to abolish barter. You need to change the terms of trade of barter. And that means essentially giving consumers more power in that barter trade, which involves one, more transparency about how data is being used, more transparency about what the companies are doing inside the company with your data, and most crucially, and this comes back to the power of market forces, data portability. If we had the ability to pull our data out of any tech company and go somewhere else, we'd actually have the beginnings of a proper market. If you put the onus on tech companies to guarantee data portability, then you'd get the beginnings of a proper market. And I'll say two more things quickly. I think that competition would be more effective in giving consumers power and actually saying, you know what, I hate what Facebook has done, so I'm going to pull my data away and go somewhere else than it would actually be in terms of regulation. And there is a model for it already, and it's called finance. If you change your bank account today, the onus is on the bank to ensure that your money goes from one bank to another. It's not on you. You don't have to go and sort of basically physically you know, get your pile of cash out and put it to another bank. That company is required to move, the, move your money. That is what we should have for tech companies today, along with better oversight, along with looking at breaking up platform control and monopolies in terms of vertical platforms. But actually, that is why consumer power and competition matters. Convinced? Yes and no. So we are on, on the same page on this. But what you're suggesting is not doing anything about the power of Facebook, anything about the power of Amazon, because let's face it, the reason why people are in Facebook is because everybody else is in Facebook. So it's economies of scale and economies of scope. And when it comes to Amazon, there is this technological structure that supports a whole economy that is a non-market and based on power. And there's nothing you can do about that if you stick to the idea of liquid property that is owned and traded in uh, share markets. It would be very remiss, I think, not to talk about poor old planet Earth and the impact of capitalism on, on uh, planet Earth and whether you think, Julian, that green growth is possible. If we look around planet today and uh, man-made global warming to say that capitalism has played a very negative role in that and to be rather sceptical. Yep, I'd come back to the fourth part of the Adam Smith framework I laid out about the need to have a shared ethical, moral, um, legal vision and above all else, which is the need to move from tunnel vision to lateral vision. Most of the tools that we developed in the late 20th century 
um, to make sense of the world like economic models. Apologies, Yanis, because I know you're an economist. But these lovely economic models, these lovely corporate balance sheets, these lovely big data sets are all very bounded and marked by tunnel vision. And they basically treat everything that isn't inside the economic model or the balance sheet as an externality or a footprint, something outside that model. And what I would argue is that one of the things that went very badly wrong with a lot of the corporate vision and the um, economic models was treating the environment as an externality. They ignored who was going to pay for the damage that was created or the cost of the natural resources they were That's using. That's quite a big flaw in the capitalist argument, then. Well, if you could actually start measuring that and putting that into your models, you start to get a very different vision of how companies are valued, how they're looking at the world. There are ways of doing that, and people are developing that, impact-weighted accounting. Well, for that, you need the regulation that you are never going to be able to have as long as power is so heavily concentrated. Um, look, let me give you an example, because um, I think we didn't manage to meet Anne this summer because uh, half of Greece because burned down. Because you just turned me down. No, because half of Greece burned down. You missed yeah. an important part of my CV these days. You know, I lead a political party in Greece. You presented me as if I'm an author and professor. I did. That's a previous you... life. Yeah, but the reason why I mentioned the fires is because, look, speaking of green growth, okay, mm. I also believe in green growth, but I also believe in green degrowth. There are things that need to grow and things that need to degrow. Like we need less cement, less CO2, less of all the toxic derivatives, the toxic fumes, right? We need fewer of those, fewer cars, whether they're electric or not, more public transport. But going back to the forest fires in Greece this summer, this is a failed state, right? But nevertheless, when it comes to profit making, it's very fast. So the day after, we were devastated and the, the flames died down. Large corporations came and took over the attempt to prevent those uh, forests from uh, becoming mud baths with the first rains. So you think, oh, that's a good thing. They came to, to help uh, shore up the, you know, the soil and, and all that. First thing they did was to offer contracts to the local population that effectively signed all their rights away for 20 euros a day. Okay. Forget that. You could expect that. The second thing they did was they tried to win new contracts for replanting the forests using genetically modified trees that will grow very quickly and they will be, give them the opportunity in the context of the green transition harvest biomass for the purposes of you know, green energy. If we allow them to do this, you're going to have, under the cover of green growth, you're going to have the devastation of the flora and the fauna of the land, and the conversion of these areas in Evia and so on into fiefdoms of Monsanto Bayer, who will have genetically poisoned the land while making it very green. Now, is this the green growth that we want? This is the green growth that this market-based system, not because it's a market, but because it's, Monsanto is not a market. Okay, they are a toxic back. monolith. There are ex numerous examples of greenwashing. There's numerous examples of companies and financiers using the green label to do all kinds of egregious things. That I would completely agree with. However, one of the other reasons I believe in competition is that I believe in checks and balances. And I don't think we can sit there and trust government alone 
to turn us green. Back in the 1970s, when Milton Friedman developed his vision of shareholder capitalism, which I do not agree with, there were two things that were very different. One, back then, people thought that they could outsource the really difficult decisions in life, the social stuff, to governments and companies just worried about their balance sheets. And secondly, you did not have radical transparency and most people did not know what was actually happening inside companies. Today, we have a world where no one actually trusts the government to get stuff done. And we have a world where all of you have cell phones with extraordinary levels of access to information if you choose. And many aspects of corporate life are subject to radical transparency. The reason that you know so quickly about what was happening in those forests is precisely because of this radical transparency. So I come back to the point. It's not an either-or. We don't need government or companies to be green or NGOs. We actually benefit by having different groups in society doing this. It is a good thing that actually we're not just relying on the Greek government alone to deal with replanting those forests. It's good that we have citizens armed with cell phones giving you the data you just quoted. And it's good that we've had companies coming in and feeling the need to do something about it even if they are being essentially driven by less than virtuous principles and even if some of the things they're doing are wrong. Many of the things that companies are doing today are better than they were doing two or three decades ago. So my question to you, Yanis, is this. Would you wind back the clock and have companies to go back to where they were 20 or 30 years ago? Would you only rely on government, the governments we have, to turn us green because look back what's happened in the last decade. It ain't been so good. There is a shift in zeitgeist amongst investors and businesses that reflects social shifts that comes back to radical yeah, transparency. Come back on that because we then must open up to our very patient audience. You're quite yeah. clearly mistaking me for, for, for one of those socialists that likes the state. I loathe the state. In the same way that I loathe Monsanto and Bayer, right? So... My, my worry, Julian, is that the state and those large corporations are in cahoots. They're working together. I want diversity. I want people who live in these areas to be empowered to do things without either Bayer Monsanto descending upon them and effectively taking them over, or the state saying, oh, I will fix everything for you. The question is, how do you empower communities? with their necessary capital, the necessary expertise, and leave them to their own devices in order to do stuff. Uh, I think that that is the future. The future is for living neither under the thumb of the state nor under the thumb of corporate capital. What about the wider world? You know, what about developing nations? Do you think you could persuade people in countries who feel that they've come later to the fruits of capitalism? Perhaps in China, yes, you can call it state capitalism, but it feels quite capitalist when you're in it, that they need to replace their economic model. I have no doubt that the large majority of people in India, in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in China itself, do not want to play catch-up with the West in the sense of you know, more cement, more environmental destruction, more destruction of their communities, more blocks of flats, you know, destroying their villages. I'm sure that they would like to be empowered. The difficulty that we have with people in India and Bangladesh is the same difficulty we have here in the United Kingdom, in Greece, in France, and Germany. And it is because you mentioned David Graeber. 
The difficulty is to move away from Thatcher's dogma of Tina, that there is no alternative, to what David was saying, that everything could be different. Do you not think that the, to fix capitalism we need less asymmetry of information in the market? I think that today there's more information, but it's not the right information. And without the right information, how are you supposed to fix these issues? You reminded me of this great uh, illusion that is motivated that you know, capitalism is a system where wealth is produced individually and then the state comes and socializes it when it's exactly the opposite. And the state has always been part of the evolution of capitalism. Regarding uh, information, yes, I mean, information is power. And um, exorbitant power uh, is, you know, goes hand in hand with the exorbitant asymmetry in information. This power is not simply based on information. If I have a gun and you don't have a gun, you know, I have power over you. If you're starving, if your kids uh, are going to bed hungry at night and the only way of getting, you know, some milk or bread is to do whatever I ask you to do, then that's not the question of the asymmetry of information. Asymmetry of information then comes on top of it and it gives me even more of an extravagant, exorbitant privilege over you. But we live in a world where you have long-term problems for climate change and you need global coordination, not competition. How is capitalism going to be compatible with that? Adam Smith's idea was that through the market, conflict of interest turns into collaboration and coordination. But he himself knew the limits of this. For instance, when it came to education, he thought that this doesn't work. Uh, the problem, however, is that you know, if, if you look at the theory of moral sentiments, which Gillian did very well to bring up. You know, Smith quite rightly explains that the baker, the, the butcher, and the brewer, in order to provide the common good for the common good, even though that, that's not their intention, the intention is to make a living for themselves, uh, they need to have a bed of um, shared morals and shared values on which to operate. The problem is that with the second industrial revolution, and now especially with the digital revolution, you have economies of scale and economies of scope that destroy both the moral bed on which the baker, the, the, the brewer and the butcher can operate, as well as their businesses. They are taken over by Starbucks or whatever. And then suddenly both the theory of, the modern, uh, of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations goes out of the window. And we have what I think is can be described quite feasibly and reasonably as techno-feudalism. That's why we need anti-monopoly laws. That's why we need regulation. That's why we need government. It's not an either-or. You know, if you're going to play a good game of soccer, you need to have an umpire. You need to have agreed rules. You need to have someone organize a league. But you still need to have the players compete. And that's why I'm calling you utopic. Because it is impossible to have those <laughs> well, rules in these governments when you have two parties, both representing the techno-feudal lords in Parliament, in every country. Well, I would argue that actually doing without the competition, doing without the productive motive, without doing without the pricing, because pricing, I still think, is an amazingly good mechanism for crystallizing probability and competition. Without, without all that, that's even more utopic. I agree. That's why think. we need to do away with capitalism, to have proper competition and proper, proper markets. So you argue that socialism done properly would include 
better markets and better competition. Yes. That is not a vision of socialism I've often seen defined. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not your run-of-the-mill socialist. I was, was wondering why, Yanis, you think that uh, this is a terminal point of capitalism rather than a, some, a cyclical feature of the system when, uh, you know, large companies existed and were eventually gobbled up by governments, the most notable example being the East India Company, and why cooperatives are going to replace them when cooperatives, by their very nature, have no incentives to reinvest and expand their operations. The East Indian Company is a very interesting example because, you see, if, it was, if capitalism was less of that, it would never have succeeded. The reason why capitalism succeeded was because it went beyond what the East Indian Company did uh, with production, not just simply exploitation, expropriation and trade and arbitrage. But the Standard Oil question is fascinating. Look, Rockefeller and Standard Oil was extremely powerful. And, you know, Theodore Roosevelt did amazingly well to break it up. And the anti-trust legislation is, um, you know, to be applauded. Can we do the same? No, I don't think so. I don't think we can do the same with Amazon and with Facebook. And let me tell you why. Standard Oil was a monopoly. There was a market. You know, they managed to corner the market. Every petrol station in almost every state was owned by them. But it was a market, right? Compare Standard Oil and contrast it with Amazon. Imagine a science fiction horror movie where, you know, uh, or scenario, and suddenly you realize as you're walking down the street that every building belongs to the same person. Everything that is being bought or sold is controlled by one person or the algorithm owned by one person. That the park bench on which you sit is controlled by that same person. But moreover, not only the air that you breathe, but what you can see and what you can't see is controlled by the same person. This is worse than Orwell. That's Amazon. That is not a monopoly. That the only thing I can imagine coming close to that is the fiefdom, you know, Downton Abbey, the Lord owns the whole thing. Only this time, it's a techno fiefdom. And the power that that bestows upon the people who own it, and the people who own the people who own the people who own all the other companies that are fading within the capitalist realm, is such that I do not believe it is possible to do that which Roosevelt did with Standard Oil. I should say, by the way, that um, as part of my belief in the power of competition, I also believe in pluralism in different models, different types of companies. I should say that I, don't, I am to believe that um, societies and economies are best served when you have a divergence of ownership structures and ownership models. I don't think that having public equity markets listed um, companies is the only way to run companies. I think you should have checks and balances. Um, and going back to the issue about whether there are other ways to organize societies, I say bring on the experiments. Can capitalism exist without exploitation? Because frankly, one of the arguments against capitalism is how exploitative it is for people. Is there a world that exploitation cannot happen at all? You spoke about how there is sort of radical transformation of technology and we have more information at our fingertips so we can decide better. But there was little discussion about the agency that people have. So at least 40% of the world is living below the poverty line. So they don't really have the agency of choosing whether or not to interact with Google or whoever. Uh, so in that situation, can capitalism be counted upon that now I can choose to interact with a company or not choose to interact based on where I'm placed? I would argue, no, you can't rely just on capitalism alone to fix that. Definitely not. 
That's why you need government and regulation. However, having better information is a good place to start and a good place to start getting people focused on trying to campaign for change and focusing on it. Key point is this, can capitalism exist without exploitation? Not if you believe that any competition produces winners or losers. And if you think that competition spurs people to compete harder, to fight harder and to innovate and help growth, then that's inevitable. But what you can do is introduce checks and balances to actually rein in the egregious levels of exploitation and competition and prevent the winners from abusing the losers and prevent that being recycled over generations. Absolutely. I would also turn it around and ask Yanis and say this. My experience of looking at systems which claim to be socialist or run on socialist systems principles is that they often have embedded insidious forms of exploitation, of inequality, but less acknowledged as well. I've yet to see a truly egalitarian socialist system. Well, look, where we will agree is that we cannot have a society which is free and worth living in and fighting for if it's not based on markets and competition. Here we can agree. Where we disagree is on, is on private ownership of things that are necessary in order to produce other things. Capital. This is where our disagreement is. Now, Gillian may very well say that, and she would be right, that a market which operates without private ownership of means of production has never been tried before. True. What I'm saying is it is time to go for it. Because the alternative, which is regulating the beasts of this capitalist system, which I call techno-feudalism, by the way, going back to, the, you know, to, to a previous uh, altercation, which is more utopic, to think that you can regulate this beast, which is running out of control and is seriously anti-liberal, anti-democratic. It's turning against the basic principles of liberalism. Remember, Friedrich von Hayek, the great guru of the libertarians, even of Thatcher, once said that, you know, socialists are not bad people, he said about us. Uh, the problem is that in order to enact socialism, they have to do, to do things that contradict their principles. I reverse that, and I'm saying that those who are advocating in favor of capitalism, they're not, you're not bad people. You want good things, and things that we share. But in order to do it, you will have to violate your own liberal principles. So one of the main points with which you seem to differ with capitalism was on profits. So you've mentioned as another alternative for the government making money, just basically printing money, which of course is not a sustainable solution in the long term. So without companies being profit-driven in a competitive environment, what incentive do companies really have to then fund those governments? Um, so my question is about power in both the vision, utopic visions that you've presented and There's something about what you said that assumes that inequalities will be eradicated once capitalism is either fixed or um, completely taken over by something new. But that doesn't account for what Cedric Robinson has written about uh, racial capitalism and actually racial inequality and the Black Lives Matter movement, about it, which is very anti-capitalist. Uh, just wanted to get your views on uh, how much of the issue with capitalism might be the over-financialization of it, because we have a situation where global capital markets are now worth more than cumulative global GDP, um, and where does this stop? Does this break at some point? Or so very briefly, let me say something about power, racism, and I will add patriarchy. 
I don't believe that we have the answers to these things. I do not believe that my side of politics, even my very quaint version of socialism, even if we manage to sort out all the problems with corporations, with uh, the power of capital to exploit, to reproduce itself and so on, that we can deal with patriarchy or racism. Discrimination runs very deeply in our societies. And, you know, we can reduce the toxicity which always breeds more racism and more xenophobia and more sexism. But I'm pessimistic about human nature. We really need, uh, you know, I look into myself and I find a Nazi living in me, a racist living in me, a sexist living in me. I constantly have battles with me, with myself, and anybody who tells me that you're not like that, you're lying. We are all like this, we all have a dark side, and we all need to fight constantly against it. That's interesting answer. Julian. I would say that one of the messages that anthropology tries to hammer home is that by immersing yourself in the lives of others who seem strange to you, you don't just get empathy for another point of view and a vision of how you could do things differently, you also get the ability to look back at yourself with more clarity and understand yourself. Because a fish can't see water unless they jump out of their fishbowl. And I think that's what we need to do today. Because we assume that the vision of capitalism that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years is the only vision of capitalism out there that could possibly exist. And that's simply not true. The profit principle, the competition principle, the idea of trade has been expressed in many different ways. Markets have been expressed in many different ways too. Yanis now appears to be defining markets as something that you can have in socialism. Great, bring it on, incorporate it back into a broader church of capitalism under that idea. But my key point is this, that actually it is possible to reimagine capitalism. It is possible to fix its flaws. It is not a perfect system. But capitalism and markets operate on the idea that you need to have a plurality of ideas and competition. You need to have checks and balances. Things move in cycles. And right now, we need to fix capitalism. And I would argue we actually could, with a combination of digital technology, the fact you have more people empowered, the fact we're being forced to widen our lens beyond balance sheets to look at things like the environment, and the very fact that we're having this debate today, where actually, Yanis and I have probably ended up agreeing on more than we've been disagreeing on. Thank you so much. A great conversation. You were just listening to Gillian Tett and Yanis Varoufakis on Can Capitalism Be Fixed? They spoke at Union Chapel in London, UK. Gillian Tett is an award-winning journalist at the Financial Times, where she is chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large. Yanis Varoufakis is a member of the Greek Parliament and founder of Mera 25, a progressive Greek political party. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Chris Hedges, Angela Davis, Noam Chomsky, Tarek Ali, 
and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for copies of today's program, Jillian Tett and Yanis Varoufakis on Can Capitalism Be Fixed? And for Noam Chomsky's book, Requiem for the American Dream, Principles of Concentration of Wealth and Power, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. George is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM, where the sun never sets and the fun never stops. Broadcasting in Calgary, located on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Here you will find relaxation and your heart's delight. Listen away, for we are your ray of sunshine. Never quite what you imagine. Red carpet for the purple heart dragon. Squeeze some tangerine and cocktails. Witness magic. When I'm off that la la, watch time fly by. Rap shit on bye bye. Cause I don't wanna hurt nobody, no la la. Youngers and they feelings, can you judge them? Beefing with tycoons and real smugglers. The cotty ducking, no promise for the hustler. The black cusser, watch your mouth cause they will touch you. We still begging. Women coming from all over. Witness the passion. I might just cop a Range Rover. How many fans can I fit wagon before they ban them? I know some. 
from old dudes, they can't stand them. But real G's love a champion. Feel like I'm walking phantom. Getting coffee, selling pictures from memoirs. I think I'm done dancing. I remember smoking cigarettes, fucking with methods. What the fuck was I thinking? Trying to hide behind smoking mirrors. What could prepare us? You kids hilarious. How could you hear us? Ain't always fucked up your chakra. Sorry, Papa. I'm still on top, but invisible. You said it better. Shooters remain nameless, ready for hairy weather. Uh, rusty flow might be off, but I pivot. But you know I stay with it. This one fat motherfuckers with beers. This the shit for women toting pepper spray for the wears. I hear you, mama. Yeah, I know you ain't scared. Stay safe, man. I hope you prepared. The vagabond might return in a year. Boy, they got me couple beats, man. I might shed a tip. Cause you know the beast, the only reason niggas still here. Away. I'm away.